Father, we praise you for who you are, and we praise you for Christ. Thank you for such a glorious Savior, and thank you that our salvation rests secure in his hands. And thank you for that perfect sacrifice that has appeased your wrath. And thank you, Father, that uh, only by your grace we get the privilege to be called sons and daughters of the living God. And I pray for every brother and sister in this church. And I pray that we'll love you more. That we'll love you deeper. And that our life will revolve around Jesus. That we'll be beacons of light in this dark world for your glory. And I pray that you would even help Pastor Dave at this difficult time. That you would comfort him that you would heal his body, that you would ease his pain. And Father, just help him to grow even more through this uh, trial. And thank you that nothing more serious has happened. And thank you that we trust in your sovereignty and that it's always your will, it's always will, it's always good and perfect. And I pray for this morning and I pray uh, for the preaching of your word. I pray that you help me to speak with clarity that you help them to understand, that you help all of us to come with a humble heart before your word to submit to your instruction for our life and help us to see more of your beauty through it and just use it to, for the benefit of the church and for the glory of the Son, which ultimately is for your own glory, Father. And we praise you and we thank you for this opportunity. In the name of Jesus, amen. Lee Strobel was the chief editor of the Chicago Tribune. And his position made him famous and helped open the door to uh, his influence throughout the United States of America. And the problem with this man was that he was an atheist. Since he could remember, he always denied that there was a God. For him, the, the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe was absurd. While studying at the University of Missouri, his convictions became even stronger and more radical. And that, those convictions turned him into pretty much a die-hard defender of atheism. His only goal was to make a mockery of any person who believed in God. Just because Lee Strobel assumed that a Christian was pretty much a weak uh, intellectual. For him, life was just a random accident. Religion was the opium of the people, and the church was the breeding, breeding ground for hypocrisy. Um, he believed that Christianity was a cancer that needed to be eradicated. History has shown us that nothing good could come out of religion. Innumerable wars, uh, wars and atrocities were committed and were done in the name of God, or at least that's what Lee Strobel thought and believed. Nevertheless, one day he's tiny atheistic kingdom was shattered like a house of cards. That day, his wife came home, and the first words that came out of her mouth was, Honey, I'm safe. This short phrase for Lee Strobel was like an atomic bomb that destroyed everything that he has worked so hard to build since his childhood. Years later, during an interview Speaking of this very specific time, he says the following, and I'll quote. When Leslie told me that she had become a Christian, the first word that passed through my mind was divorce. I didn't want to be married to a Christian. 
I was an atheist and I thought that Christianity was a fantasy made up of legends and myths. The last thing that I wanted was for my wife to become a fanatic. Someone who I didn't marry. I married an atheist. It wasn't part of the deal for her to become a Christian. So the only, thought that I, the only thing that I thought was I need to leave. End quote. But instead of leaving his wife, as a good journalist, Lee Strobel decided to stay and to, to prove to his wife that Christianity was all a lie. So after two years of research trying to make a case against Christ, the unthinkable happened. And Lee Strobel himself became a Christian. He realized that he needed more faith to remain an atheist than to actually be a follower of Christ. When he faced the beauty of Christ, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, he had no choice but to believe and to repent. From this moment on, he became a strong advocate for Christ and the gospel of salvation. He left his job as a chief editor. He began pastoring a small church. He wrote several books defending the Christian faith, some of which have become bestsellers. How is it possible, I ask? How is it possible that a chief editor of the Chicago Tribune leaves his job and that a person who was an atheist to the core becomes a proclaimer, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What was it that made possible such a change? What did it change him in such a way that he went from mocking God to preaching God? The answer It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus radically transformed Lee's struggle. Only God could take a man who despises the message of the gospel and turn him into a preacher. It was the same message that once he hated. This radical change was also evident in the life of another person who lived many centuries ago and whom we all know well. And I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he went from persecuting the church to suffering for the church, from trying to destroy the name of Christ to dying for it. The Apostle, the gospel, transformed the Apostle. And it was the same gospel that made the Apostle Paul to turn the Roman Empire on its head. It's something defined the ministry. If something defined the life of the apostle was the centrality, the exclusivity, the necessity of the gospel. And this is the reason why Paul preached and why Paul fought for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the same way, if we profess to believe the same gospel that the apostle Paul has believed, we also need to preach this gospel. We also need to fight for this gospel. The slightest change in the gospel of Jesus Christ could have and will have terrible consequences. The eternal destination of millions of people depends not only on us proclaiming the gospel, but on us fighting to preserve the purity of this message. True Christianity, and therefore a true Christian, is defined by his faithfulness to Christ and his gospel. It's defined by the actions of preaching, proclaiming, and fighting for the gospel. Our society, nowadays, more than ever, I would say, need to hear the gospel. 
But how can they hear it if we don't proclaim it? How can they believe in the gospel, in its transforming power, if we're not willing to pay the price for fighting for the gospel? It is our call as Christians to proclaim and to fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the lesson we learned this morning from our passage. We'll be looking at Acts 9, verses 20 and 22. Acts 9, verses 20 and 22. So before we go any farther, let's read these verses. Acts 9, verses 20 through 22. Talking about the Apostle Paul, Luke writes, And immediately, verse 20, at Acts 9, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed. And were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who call on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. In this passage, we'll learn, we'll see two actions that define true Christianity. Two actions that define true Christianity. The first action is that true Christianity proclaims the gospel. We'll see that in verses 20 and 21. And in verse 22, we'll see that true Christianity fights for the gospel. True Christianity preaches the gospel. True Christianity contends for the gospel. Notice how the the key element that characterizes Christianity, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, we take pride in calling ourselves Christians. Well, if that's the case, if we truly want to be consistent with the name that we represent, then let it be because our life, our ministry, our service, everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think revolves around the gospel of Jesus Christ. The moment when we are the most Christians, if you could say such a thing, is when we preach and we, when we fight for this gospel. We're Christians Not because our bumper sticker says so. Or because you have a fish on your car. We're Christians because of the person in whom we have believed. So with that said, let's look at the first action that defines true Christianity. True Christianity proclaims the gospel. Let me read again verses 20 and 21. Luke writes, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who call on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? In these verses, we see one of the major turnarounds of Christian history. Saul, an avid, persistent, relentless persecutor of the church, becomes a preacher of Christ. His immediate response response to the gospel was to proclaim the gospel. Verse 20 begins by saying, And immediately, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. In other words, right after his conversion, which is described to us in verses 1 through 19 of the same chapter, the apostle begins to proclaim his faith. Paul could not shut his mouth. As soon as he regained sight... 
as soon as he ate food and regained strength, the first thing that he does is that he goes out and he preaches the gospel. I think that in one sense, we all can relate to Paul. I remember when God saved me and the only thing that I want to do was to proclaim Jesus to others. My family, my friends. No matter what I was, I always tried to take the opportunity to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ. If they gave me that opportunity, I took it without thinking about it, about it twice. Even if I didn't have that opportunity, I didn't care. I just dove in the deep end of the pool without knowing if I could swim or not. I just want to preach the gospel. And just like me, there were many others who had that passion for the gospel. And I'm assuming that many of you also thought, thought the same way. John Wesley summed it up really well when he said, If you have the faith, you will preach the faith. This makes me wonder what happened. Because as the years have gone by, I realize that my passion for the gospel is not what it should be. It's that reality that I also see in other believers. Even some of them are brave enough, and I would say foolish enough, to say this is normal. But I ask, how can it be normal? It is assumed that as we are growing in our faith, we are being exposed to the scripture of God. We mature. And if we mature, our love for Christ, our love for God goes deeper. And it grows more and more. We ought to say that today we love Christ more than we love Him in the, on the day of our salvation. So if this is the case... How is it, how is it that we speak of him less today than we spoke of him when he first saved us? Why is there such a disconnect between the love we profess to have for him and the frequency in which we proclaim his name, in which we preach his gospel? I love my wife. After eight years of marriage, I love her more than I love her when I first got married to her. And it's because of my love for her that I will take any opportunity that I have to speak well of her. Because, because I love her and I want people to see what a beautiful treasure God has entrusted to me. It's my love that motivates me to speak of her. Likewise with Christ. It's not any different. The more we love him, the more we want to make him known. So if you admit that your passion for the gospel has grown cold, you need to ask yourself if you have forgotten your first love. What is it that you love the most? Christ? Or whatever your family or friends may think of you when you preach Christ. What is it more important? Your reputation or the, the reputation of Christ himself? And this is the very reason, the love that Paul had for Christ, that his passion for the gospel never grew cold. Apostles' unceasing desire to proclaim Jesus and his gospel was like a fire out of control that leveled everything in its path because of the love that the apostle had for his Savior. Wherever he went, he proclaimed the gospel. Acts 9 verses 20 through 22 are only three verses, but they, but they extend over the period of three years. 
We learn, thanks to Galatians 1.17, that during these three years in Damascus, Paul actually traveled to Arabia, uh, specifically to the Nabataean kingdom, which is located about 170 miles south to Damascus. Paul did not travel there to do tourism, to visit new places. The sole purpose of this trip was to preach the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 32 and 33, Paul explains how the ethnarch of this kingdom, the ethnarch of the Nabataean kingdom, chased him back to Damascus to arrest him. Paul was a new convert. And out of his love for, for Christ, the first thing that he does is that he immediately proclaims the gospel. But not only that, he decides to travel pretty much on foot, almost 170 miles, to proclaim the gospel. And what is it that he faced? What was waiting for him? Persecution. And not any kind of persecution it was brutal. It was fierce. The ethnarch was so eager to, to fulfill his master's wishes that he persecutes. He chases Paul back to Damascus 170 miles. And not only that, he waits for Paul at the wall of Damascus seeking for an opportunity to seize him. There is no question that he was determined to apprehend Paul. But why? Was it because Paul was a Jew? Was it because Paul was a Roman citizen? No. It's because of the gospel that Paul preached. It shows us that the message that Paul preached upsets the sinner. How often or how many times have we wonder how to make the gospel more appealing to our society, to make it more likable, that the gospel will be better welcomed by the unbeliever. Truth to be told, if we want to be faithful to this message because we love Christ and want to be faithful to Him, and we preach the same message that Paul preached, then we are going to step on people's toes, on many toes, Every single time. Because the message of the gospel is upsetting. It's offensive. That doesn't give us the right to be offensive. Our words ought to be gracious and loving. We need to keep in mind that unbelievers are blinded by Satan, their own sinful nature. And that they, we only saw the beauty of Christ shining through the gospel because of the grace of God. But also we need to keep in mind that if we want to proclaim him as the one whom God the Father has highly exalted above all of creation as we just sang, then we need to confront the sinner with his sin. And just say to an unbeliever in the most loving and so soft-spoken way that he is not as good as he may think. In fact, tell him that all his good deeds are nothing but filthy rags. That everything he does, everything he thinks, everything he is, all his intentions, all his desires, all his actions, all of them as good as they may be in the sight of God without Christ, they are equally as gross as used feminine products. That's what filthy rags means. That's the expression that the prophet Isaiah is using in the Old Testament. In short... Everything that a sinner is and everything that a sinner does in light of the majestic, infinite, eternal holiness of, of God is just truly disgusting. 
No wonder people get offended when they hear the message of the gospel. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because if we want to be true to what Christianity is, we must preach this message. Biblical Christianity is not measured by society's respect. Biblical Christianity is not measured by our, our cultural relevancy. 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 Uh, biblical Christianity is not measured by political influence. But biblical Christianity is measured by our faithfulness to Christ. By our faithfulness to his gospel. Are we faithful to him? Regardless of the position that we may face. Or are we ashamed of proclaiming this message? Are we concerned about what people may think of us, about what our family members may think of us. Are we tempted to just change the gospel a little bit, just a tiny bit, to make it more appealing to our sinful audience? Do we make the gospel simply about the blessings that we receive and not the holiness and the justice and the wrath of God and His love and mercy in Christ Jesus? Let the biblical gospel be the defining tenet of our Christianity. This gospel isn't just any gospel. It is the exclusive gospel that exalts Christ and humbles the sinner, which definitely will end up offending him. This is the very same gospel that Paul the apostle proclaimed. Look at the end of verse 20. At the end of verse 20, specifically at the words that the apostle preached. He said, he is the son of God. He is the son of God. The vocabulary that Paul is using is very specific. He's not leaving any room to confuse Jesus with any other Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God. The same Jesus that the Jews knew. The same Jesus whom they heard preaching a few years ago. The same Jesus who performed many, many, many miracles in front of their eyes. The same Jesus who walked among them. The same Jesus whom they despised. The same Jesus whom they crucified. The same Jesus whom the Father has from the dead, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. No other Jesus, no other person, only Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. This is the Jesus that Paul is proclaiming. This man that you guys met a few years ago and you crucified because he proclaimed himself the Son of God, he is indeed the Son of God. And he is not the Son of any God. But he is the son of the God of the Jews. Jesus, who was rejected by Israel, who was crucified by the Romans, who was raised from the dead by God, is the son of the same God who delivered the Israelites from Egypt, who gave them the law, who established with them the Mosaic Covenant. The God that the Jews knew is the father of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying, with, with, without any hesitation at all, and with all boldness, he's proclaiming to this Jewish man, he's saying that the man Jesus of Nazareth is also of the same, the same divine essence of, as Yahweh. Jesus is as God, as the same God whom the Israelites worship. Because in fact, he is and he comes from that God. Imagine <laughs> How mad, mad the Jews must have been when they heard those words. But it doesn't matter. Without this truth 
we do not have the gospel of salvation. We needed a man, that's true. We needed a man that could represent humanity and take our place on the cross of Calvary. But we needed also a divine person of infinite value to pay for and cancel the infinite debt for our sins. And only the second person of the Trinity incarnate could achieve such a thing. Only Christ could achieve the forgiveness of our sins. If the man Jesus was not God, we cannot be saved. But praise God that he is God. We do not have the luxury to preach a different Christ. We do not have the luxury to change this message. The true essence of true Christianity depends on these very words. He is the Son of God. Every human, whether he likes that or not, whether he knows it or not, needs to understand, needs to recognize that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of God. And if this is true, which it is, then every person owes him full allegiance and obedience. There are no shortcuts to heaven. If you want to preach a message that has the power to save unbelievers, then you need to proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Unbelievers, they need to recognize that He is Lord. They must embrace and submit to His authority and obey His word. And the first command that he's given from the heavens is like, believe and repent. Nevertheless, go to the lost, lost world and confront unbelievers with this truth. What's going to happen? They will mock you. They will laugh at you. But again, it doesn't matter. Because this is a message that God himself has entrusted to us. And this is the message that he has commanded us to preach the Holy Spirit will only use this message to save the people. The beauty of Christ will be shown to a blind world only through the proclamation of who Christ is and what he has done. It was this glorious Christ who, who, who humbled and radically transformed Paul. Therefore, it is unthinkable, it is illogical to say, let's preach a different Christ. Let's preach a more likable Jesus, a less Lord Jesus. We cannot preach anything different, or rather anybody different. Look at the impact that Christ, this Christ had in the life of the apostle. In verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, chapter 9. We read that Saul went to the high priest to ask for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he could take uh, Christians captive in the area. The Jews in Damascus were uh, excited. Finally, somebody is coming with a uh, blessing from the high priest to, to, to arrest these Christians that are turning the world upside down. They were eager to restablish order and to erase from the face of the earth this new aberration called Christianity. But a stark contrast took place. When Paul was on his way to Damascus, the glorified Christ appeared to him in a light from heaven. And he said, verses that you all know well, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
And we can say that this specific instant in Paul's life represents the death of Saul and the birth of the apostle Paul. Overnight, Paul went from persecuting the church to identifying himself with them. From seeking to put out the fire of Christianity to become himself the torch bearer of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. He no longer came into the synagogues to apprehend people, Christians. But he went in there with the message that release, remove the shackles of sins from sinners. Jesus came to the encounter of a murderer to turn him into his mouthpiece with the message of eternal life. So it shouldn't surprise us at all what the Jews said about Paul when they saw the impact that Jesus Christ had in his life. In verse 21, it says, all those hearing him and the things that he was saying, that he is Lord, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, continue to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who call on his name and who have come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? They were full of unbelief. They were perplexed. They were, they were puzzled. Their, their eyes could not believe what they were seeing. That this Paul now is persecuting Christ. Uh, sorry, preaching Christ. That he is proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. But the Jews did not realize that Jesus encountered Paul. And Jesus transformed Paul through the gospel. Now Paul belonged to the same group of those who call on his name. Which simply means on those who recognize that he is the son of God. In other words, the same statement that once before made the blood of Paul boil. Now is what motivates him to proclaim Christ. We proclaim him because he is the son of God. There is no other Jesus who can say such a thing. There is no other person who can claim such a title. Only Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary, is the son of God. We proclaim the same Christ that Paul proclaimed. We have believed the same message that Paul have believed. We have been saved by the same Savior. We shouldn't have trouble proclaiming the same gospel. If Paul could not keep quiet, why can't you? If you profess to believe the same message, to have faced the same Savior, why can't you shut your mouth and not speak of him? Paul was a true Christian, and he was known as such because of his pro proclamation of the true Christ. In the same way, if we are true Christians, we need to proclaim Jesus Christ. And we have to do it immediately. When was the last time that you preached the gospel? When was the last time that you sought for an opportunity to preach the gospel? That you made for an opportunity to preach the gospel? If you claim to be a Christian, I beg you that your life may be characterized for the proclamation of the true gospel. The same gospel that Paul preached. This glorious gospel that exalts Christ himself. But in this passage, we find a second action that defines biblical Christianity. 
Biblical Christianity is defined not only because of the proclamation of the gospel, but true Christianity also fights for the gospel. Let's read verse 22 again. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who live at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Paul did not only proclaim the message. He fought for the purity of the message. When Luke writes that Saul kept increasing in strength, he means that the apostle continued to grow stronger in the proclamation of this gospel. So much he did it in such a way that as the Jews at Damascus who heard him were confused by what Paul was saying. There is a play on words in this verse that reminds us of the power of the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel. What Luke is trying to say or to do by writing the way he writes is us. He wants us to think of Stephen. He wants us to think of the same spirit that strengthened Stephen. As Stephen was facing death and he was strengthened by the spirit of God. Now Paul, who before approved of the murderer of Stephen. Now this Paul is actually strengthened by the same spirit. Spirit to proclaim the same gospel. The Spirit of God was strengthening Paul to grow stronger in the knowledge of the gospel in the scripture. And this knowledge, the knowledge that he had of the Old Testament used by the Holy Spirit, became a stumbling block for the Jews at Damascus. Whenever they listened to Paul, they were confounded. And the idea in the original language is that they were very, very angry. The Jews were not confused, like, oh, maybe he's right. I never heard of these sins. Oh, I should rethink of what he's saying. Maybe he, he's true. We killed the Messiah. Oh, no, what are we going to do now? No, no. They were thinking this. Who does he think he is to tell us those sins? They were exasperated. They could not leave Paul without arguments. They didn't know how to shut him up. So pretty much what this verse is saying is that the apostle was strengthened by the Spirit of God to prove from the Old Testament that is a scripture that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. Simply said, he fought for the gospel. He fought from the scripture to preserve the purity of the gospel. Sadly, the Jews, instead of humbling themselves, Before this truth and believing in the gospel, they gnashed their teeth. They hated Paul. They hated him with his guts. And they tried to kill him. That's why we have in verses 23 and 24, which we're not going to read, how they plotted to end his life. But Paul didn't get scared. He didn't stop proclaiming the gospel. He didn't stop fighting for this gospel. He didn't change his proclamation of the gospel. He continued to go back to the Old Testament and prove that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. The Jews believed in God. They had the law. They had the prophets. So what was wrong with them? What was their mistake? It's pretty simple and pretty sad. They had the wrong understanding of who Jesus is. Their gospel was a false gospel because it denied the deity of Christ. If we did not have the right perspective of Christ, we cannot be safe. This is the very reason why Paul fought to preserve the purity of the message. 
the consequences of altering the message of Christ are catastrophic. Paul was willing to die simply to preserve the purity of this gospel. For him, such a definitive sacrifice was well worth it. How different is nowadays? We're living in a historical time in all of Western society, Europe and North America. We are enjoying religious freedom. We're not persecuted for our faith. We're, we do not receive death um, threats. Nobody is crouching at the door waiting to kill us for proclaiming that Jesus is God. In all of church history, this is the time of most freedom to proclaim the gospel. Instead of wallpapering the streets with the name of Christ, to me it seems that Christianity today is more concerned about being politically correct and not offending anybody than to proclaim this Christ, than to fight for this message. I would like to read you, to you an interview that Larry King made to the pastor, quote-unquote, the pastor of the largest or the fastest-growing church in America, and also church, quote-unquote. Keen, is it hard to lead a Christian life? Osteen, I don't think it's a hard. To me, it's fun. Keen, but you have rules, don't you? Osteen, well, we do have rules. But the main rule to me is to honor God with your life, to live a life of integrity. Not be selfish. You know, help others. Keen, that we practice good deeds. Austin, I don't know. What do you mean by that? Keen, because we have had ministers on here who have said, your record doesn't count. You either believe in Christ or you don't. If you believe in Christ, you are, you're going to heaven. And if you don't, no matter what you've done in your life, you ain't. Austin, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's probably a balance between. I believe you have to know Christ. Kim, what if you are Jews, a Jewess or a Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? Austin, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. Kim, if you believe that you have to believe in Christ, then they are wrong, aren't they? Austin, well, I don't know. I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches. And from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about the religion. But I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity. So I don't know. End quote. How can you say that you do not know? The Bible is crystal clear. There is salvation in no one else than Jesus Christ. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. The gospel is exclusive. There is no other Christ. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, saves. If you do not believe in Him, you're making a monumental mistake and you are heading straight to hell. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul also went on an interview 
in his time. But during his interview, he actually was interviewed by the most powerful, powerful men of his day. At that time, Paul was in chains and his life was in danger. However, he wasn't ashamed of Christ. He didn't mind at all what others could say about him. His only concern was what the risen Christ thought of him. This is why he had no problem to proclaim to the Lord of Rome, the Caesar himself, that only Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and God. Paul knew that the power of God for salvation was found in this message. Therefore, it is unthinkable that somehow we may be willing to de- defend a different message than the message that exalts Christ, that presents the true Christ. The gospel of Christ is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation in such a way that it will rapture a man from the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, and will deeply enroot him in the kingdom of the Son of God. This gospel, this powerful message will force this man to leave behind his life of sinful desires and to walk in obedience to the word of Christ. Only this message has such a power. It is imperative, therefore, that we do not proclaim a different gospel. We must proclaim the the true gospel and we must defend the purity of this gospel. The true identity of Christianity depends on it. The salvation of unbelievers depends on it. Even our own assurance of eternal life depends on this gospel. Paul was convinced that if Christ radically changed his life, then the message he preached had to be about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not about how good we think we are. Not even about the blessings that we receive in salvation. Those are distractions for the highlight of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 22 how Christ was essential to Paul's message. He, the apostle, proved at the end of the verse, prove that Jesus is the Christ. He proclaimed that he's the son of God in verse 20. And now he proves that he is the Christ. And this phrase portrays Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. That is the one who has been anointed by God to reign, to exercise dominion over creation. This expression alludes to Psalm 2. Where the psalmist prophesied about the Messiah who will receive the nations as an inheritance from God the Father. Therefore, what Paul is saying by quoting this psalm, he's alluding to scripture. He's preaching the gospel according to scripture. He didn't change the message. He went back to scripture to proclaim this Jesus of Nazareth is the reign, the king you're waiting for. He is the Messiah. He is the only one who has earned the right to sit on the throne of David. His kingdom will have no end. His dominion will be perfect. Every creature on creation will bow down his knee before this Christ. Because he is the Messiah. He is the King. There is no other message like the gospel. There is no other message like the gospel. The gospel is exclusively about Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who took upon himself our sins at the cross. It was Jesus who suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. 
It was Him who perfectly and fully satisfied the perfect demands of the holiness of God. This Jesus has given us a new identity. We were formerly enemies of God, but now we are sons and daughters of the living God. In Him, the promise of a resurrection rests, rests as secure. It is Him, the risen Christ, whom we are eagerly, supposedly, eagerly waiting to come back and, and establish His kingdom forever. He opened up the way to the Father, and now we can access the throne of grace. In Him we are declared righteous, we are declared holy, in Him we are forgiven, in Him we will be glorified. It's everything about Jesus Christ. Sin has been defeated, death has been conquered, the enemy of our souls has been overpowered, and all these were possible only and exclusively because of Jesus Christ. We were dead. But now we're alive because of the gospel. We can and we will walk in obedience because of the gospel. We can have hope in a fallen world because of the gospel. The most glorious message ever proclaimed to humanity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is... The very reason why we're not at liberty to compromise, to alter, or to even silence the exclusivity and the uniqueness of the person and work of Jesus. It is our responsibility to preach that Jesus is God and that he is the king anointed by God. We must fight for this message because it is the true message of true Christianity. The apostle Paul did not adjust the message to his context. He didn't change this truth so that his uh, hearers wouldn't be offended. He preached to the same crowd that crucified Jesus a few years ago because he declared himself the son of God. He preached to them, this Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. The presentation of Paul was according to scripture and he was bold because he loved Christ. Therefore, let us not compromise the message of the gospel in order to turn it into a tolerant and appealing idea to a relativistic and postmodern society. We must present Christ in the same way as the Bible does. We cannot change, alter any truth about Christ. The gospel message is unpopular. But once again, it doesn't matter. Because now we have the same spirit that strengthened Stephen. The same spirit that strengthened Paul when he proclaimed this message. It's also strengthening us to proclaim the very same message. You don't have to convince the unbeliever. You don't have to argue with the unbeliever. You only need to go out and tell him, God is holy. You are a sinner. You need Christ. He paid the death of sins at the, death of, at the cross of Calvary. Believe and repent for the forgiveness of your sins and walk in obedience to his word. Join the church. We need to fight for the truth about Christ. More than ever before. We need to preserve the truth about his person and his work. And it doesn't matter if people mock us. It doesn't matter if they laugh at us. It doesn't even matter, matter if they kill 
us. What truly is relevant is that if we do not fight to preserve the purity of this message, God himself will be embarrassed by us. And that's my prayer. My prayer is that the message of Christ that we proclaim may be as glorious as the message that Paul preached. Only this way will be the message of the gospel will be the defining message of true Christianity. will be the tenet that defines what we believe. Let us call ourselves Christians not because that's our heritage or because we want to differentiate ourselves from other religious groups. But let us call ourselves Christians because we have believed in Jesus Christ. And because we preach Christ and we fight to defend the purity of Christ. Of this message. Let me finish with the words of J.C. Ryle that sum up really well what we have seen this morning. Religion, to be really Christian and really good, must be the gospel. The whole gospel and nothing but the gospel. As Christ prescribed it and expounded to the apostles. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Religion, to be really Christian and really good must be the gospel, the whole gospel and nothing but the gospel. As Christ prescribed it and expounded to the apostles. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. End quote. Let's pray. Father, help us to preach the gospel, to be faithful to this message. Help us to fight for its purity. Guard our hearts from from being embarrassed by it. Make us bold and make us, as Christians, that we are known for preaching and proclaiming and fighting for this gospel. I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray that you would help us. And I pray that you would forgive all those times that we were ashamed to speak up. Thank you, Father, for the grace that is in the gospel. And thank you for the spirit that now is strengthening us. In the name of Jesus, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.com dot o-r-g